well, it was another hot, humid day dawning in the state of Georgia. It was 5 a.m. behind a fast food restaurant in Richmond Hill. An employee exits to discard the trash. And beside the dumpster, unconscious, sunburned, bleeding from the head, lay a man. With no identification, authorities dubbed him, quote, Burger King Doe. And as it turned out, you couldn't just ask him who he was. The man suffered from what is called identity loss due to dissociative amnesia. He couldn't remember who he was. Now, he could remember some things. He knew a few of his social security number digits. He could recall 25-cent grilled cheese and 5-cent glasses of milk from the state fair. And it appeared that he was probably raised Catholic based on his reaction to the word none. But he couldn't recall any president from this century or how he ended up in Georgia. In fact, Burger King Doe had no memory of his life since the 1970s. The man did not know who he was. Well, using a combination of methods involving fingerprinting and DNA testing, there was facial recognition, missing persons ad, and just general media coverage, they discovered who he was. The man's name was William Burgess Powell, missing since the late 70s. The man who lost his identity found it. Do you know who you are this morning? Do you know your identity? I'm not asking you men what you do for a living. And I'm not asking what family you are in or the results of the Myers-Briggs personality test. It's not a question of what you're good at or what you excel in. But as a Christian, as a son or daughter of God, do you know who you are? You see, a spiritual amnesia can occur for the Christian. If we don't know the God of the Bible, if we don't spend time with him, getting to know who he is and knowing who we are, if we forget his promises, we can lose our identity. David Pallison has said it this way, your true identity is who God says you are. You will never discover who you are by looking inside yourself or listening to what others say. And here's why this matter is so important. Because, American Christian, suffering is coming. Persecution for the believer. And if we are to endure, and to endure well, we need to know our identity in the Lord. This is the starting place for suffering Christians in the book of 1 Peter. Open your Bibles with me to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. This morning we begin a new expository preaching series. And if you're just joining us, what I mean by that is we like to go verse by verse through a book of the Bible as the norm. 
Uh, here in Emmanuel, the, the sermons, the messages tend to be a little bit deeper with the text. We believe that, that we're strongest when we dig down deepest, that the strongest trees grow from the deepest roots. Peter here writes to churches where persecution has either arrived or is about to arrive. This is the type of situation where you can see the storm coming on the horizon. Uh, The scent of rain is in the air. And for these Christians to to survive, to, to live well, they need to know who they are in Jesus. And this morning, Peter is going to teach traits of Jesus. We'll learn three traits of the chosen people of God. What we will learn about their identity is true for them in the days of Peter, and it's true for you and I as well. This morning we begin with the introduction, the first few verses of 1 Peter. 1 Peter is a letter. That's right, a letter with ink and handwriting. Remember the letter? If you are really radical, you're writing cursive. (laughs) The book of 1 Peter is really a letter that was sent to churches. It has an opening like any other letter. It has a main body, then a conclusion. This morning, we'll see this introduction. It's the first two verses. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered through Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Now the first word of this book is about the last name you'd expect to see in this type of letter. Talk about a transformation. When you hear the word Peter, think of a word that comes to mind to describe him. I think if during his ministry, Jesus implemented an after-school detention system, Peter would have lived at school. I mean, you recall Peter. Peter rebukes Jesus. Peter denies Jesus. Peter boasts. He lies. He hides. He falls back into hypocrisy so to the extent that Paul must rebuke him publicly in Antioch. Peter is the exact type of person God delights in transforming. You can go on and read Peter's sermons then through the book of Acts. He rose to become a leading figure in the early church. And it wasn't easy for him. He experienced persecution. He knew what it felt like. He suffered for the name of Christ. And I believe he did all this with the words of Jesus in the back of his mind. When you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not want to go and where you do not wish to go. Speaking of his death. Peter served and suffered as an apostle. Verse 1, an apostle of Jesus Christ. To be an apostle, one had to be an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. In Acts chapter 1, verse 22, they needed a replacement for Judas. You know his fate. There were 11 disciples or 11 apostles, and they needed a 12th. 
Well, it was determined that the twelfth must be a witness of the resurrection. To be an apostle, one had to be directly appointed by Christ, either commissioned during his ministry, in the case of the twelfth disciple, drawn, drawing lots through prayer, or in the case of Paul, appearing on the Damascus Road. That Jesus appointed his apostles. And thirdly, to be an apostle, one must confirm his mission and his message with miraculous signs. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. The marks of a true apostle are signs and wonders and miracles. But more than that, in the context of our passage, the apostle isn't writing his thoughts or opinions, and he's not giving suggestions. The apostle is not penning self-help for a local church. He is recording divine truth. To receive a letter from an apostle is to receive the very words of God. And this is Peter then, the author of our letter, Peter the Apostle. If you don't know the second name in the first verse of our epistle, man, would I love to tell you about him. His name is Jesus Christ. And Jesus was a very common name at the time. It was a common name among the Jews. He was born to a poor family. The Bible said he had no stately form or majesty. And Jesus would have been a pretty normal-looking guy who lived a pretty normal life, experiencing the things that you and I do. But he was also the Christ, meaning anointed one or Messiah. Jesus was the chosen one. God sent his son, Jesus, to save sinners. The Bible says that you and I sin, that our sin separates us from God. But in sending Jesus, God made a way to be reunited. And that by turning from our sin and believing upon Jesus, we are made right with God. You see, when you do this then, you become a Christian, your identity changes. You've received a new identity. This introduction then does what many other New Testament letters also do. It gives us a taste, it gives us a flavor of what is to come in the rest of this letter. Peter begins by discussing suffering and suffering as an outsider. That's a theme throughout the letter. This letter is going to discuss what it means to obey Jesus. Peter will touch on that in this introduction. And Peter knew his Bible. He knew the Old Testament. There's allusions throughout the letter. and There's an allusion to the Old Testament in the beginning. In the introduction, something, a theme that's carried throughout the letter, he speaks of aliens. Aliens. This is a word about our identity in Christ. You see, Christians are outsiders. We are pilgrims passing through. The contents speak here to exiles, to people who are different. To Christians. Let me read you a couple of ways that Bible, English Bible versions handle this, this, opening, this opening thought. One Bible version says this is addressed to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. Another Bible version addresses it to the pilgrims of the dispersion. 
And I like this version here. It calls us temporary residents dispersed. I mean, those words help form our thought as to what Peter had in mind as he thought about the identity of the Christian. And he's writing to groups of Christians who are scattered about. You see, in relationship to the world, the Christian is an alien, a stranger, a foreigner. The Christian is is a pilgrim or, or an exile. Just think about this for a moment. What do exiles do? Exiles suffer. Rare is the exile who enjoys conveniences and comforts. An exile endures. You see, something has caused that exile, that that relocation. It's something intrinsic to who the exile is. Maybe it's beliefs or convictions or identity. And an exile longs. She is longing for her future home because she's not in her home now. Believer, you are an exile in this world. This letter is for you. Just consider even geographically how it applies to you. Could you pull that first slide up for me, please? The five regions that that Peter writes about, they, they hang on the very edge of the Roman Empire. You can pull up that next slide, too. Uh, Just to give you some some references, uh, number one, up in the top, that's where uh, David Bile and Pastor Emery do ministry in Turkey. This is modern-day Turkey. And on the bottom right, you have the epicenter of the recent earthquake. So that gives you some context as to where Peter is writing here. And you have the places listed out in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. This is his audience. The letter would function a lot like a circular letter being delivered to these different churches in these different regions hanging on the edge of the Roman Empire. We're kind of like that. I mean, think about it. You're out here, Bellingham. To the north, it's Canada, and to the west, it's all water. And they're in foreign lands. They're in Gentile lands. And for you and I, we are not standing in the promised land. America is not the new Israel. This is not heaven. And I want you to think a little more deeply about this. Tell me this doesn't fit. These five regions practiced false religions. They adopted Greek philosophies, meaning they used reason to form their worldview apart from God. They pursued sexual immorality with insatiable appetites. They believed in the emperor. They put their trust in the government. It was state worship. And they worshipped nature. They had Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. You have the Columbia neighborhood, Cornwall Park, Ferndale, downtown Bellingham. Name where you live. That is not your home. If you are a Christian, this world is not your home. And if you are a Christian in this world, you are going to have trouble. And what Peter wants us to know, believers, is that you're going to suffer because you're a Christian. We are aliens because of our faith. And what Peter wants to do to combat that, to give you a tool to fight it, is to nail down your identity. 
that you would know who you are in the Lord so that you can persevere and not lose hope. Well, to begin then, these traits, these identity markers of who we are, we turn out to our first point this morning. The first trait is that we are chosen people of God. We are chosen people of God. The Bible says you are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, throughout the Bible, God consistently reveals himself as the God who chooses. The Bible calls Israel's God's chosen people. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you or choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God's choice of Israel was not about the size of Israel or their strength. And if it was, I suppose he would have chosen Egypt. But he didn't do that. He chose Israel. Small and insignificant. Not a powerhouse among world nations. God chooses nations and God chooses people. God chose Abraham. Nehemiah says, You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldees and gave him the name Abraham. And God chose Moses. The psalmist says he said that he would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. God chose David. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 10, Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. No, 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 yes. God chose David, not the other son. God chose Paul. Acts chapter 9, verse 15, But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, for Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and the kings of Israel. And God chose Peter and the disciples, Jesus stating it in John 15, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. And I want you to think for a moment now about these people and about God's decisions. Just consider how Israel displayed her gratitude for God's choice. Across the rest of the pages of the Old Testament, into the Gospels, in her treatment of Jesus, into the rest of the New. And I want you to think for a moment about these patriarchs and these leaders, these leading figures in the Old Testament. If Abraham, for example, lived in our day, he would worship at the Church of Scientology. The man was a pagan to the heart. If Moses worshipped in our day, he would be on the run from a murder warrant. If David lived in our day, he would be conquered by other giants, lust and immorality and murder. If Paul lived in our day, he would run a practice, a law practice, with the sole intent of shutting down churches. You see, God does not choose because people merit his choice. Because people earn his favor. It is not by works. Romans chapter 9 verse 10 reminds us, 
going back to the Old Testament, that Rebecca had conceived twins, and she did it by our father Isaac, writes Paul. And though the twins were not yet born and had not yet done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So how did did God choose? By what cause? In these verses, we've learned that it's not about the birth order. It's not by our works. It's not by our size or by our strength. It's not about our past. It's not about our family. The text says you were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. God foresaw who he would choose. Did an all-knowing God know the future? Of course he did. He knew who he would choose, but this word, it means much more than that, this word foreknowledge. Look down at chapter 1, verse 20. The same word is used in verse 20. And Peter, again, speaks of the foreknowledge of God. Here it relates to Jesus. For he, for Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. Did God see when Jesus would appear? Of course he did. But God knew him completely, and God knew him deeply. There was a perfect unity shared among the Trinity. God even ordained when he would come. It was Peter who would preach that. In Acts chapter 2, verse 23, Jesus was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed him to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. You see, I'm not just saying this morning that God is incredible because he can see future facts about the cross and future facts about Christians. I'm saying that God is incredible because he worked together the deeds of these Romans and the deeds of the Jews. And then in doing that, he committed no evil. And that God never orchestrated sin. And he worked it all together according to his foreknowledge. Believer, that is one big God. And that's what Peter wants you to see this morning. That your identity is in this God. You are under this God. Your identity is in him. Now listen, there are tons of questions that we ask about these topics, aren't there? There's so many questions that come up when we start talking about election and predestination. These were emotionally driven topics, in fact. The source of lively discussion. For 2,000 years, historians argue over them. Did God choose groups or did he choose individuals? Can he choose a group without choosing the individuals in the group? Was there a time when God was not all-knowing? Did he learn who would choose him and then choose them? Didn't I choose God? What's my relationship between my experience and Scripture? You know, you may have other questions, but I think just for a moment, let's set them all aside and ponder this God. Set aside the questions and just think about the God that we have read about. You see, these weighty doctrines, they are much more than fodder for lively theological discussion. They have immense practical application for our lives. Firstly, God chose us in spite of us. 
If you understand how God feels about sin, this alone will change your thoughts. God knows who we are, and then he chooses us anyway. C.H. Spurgeon said it this way, I believe the doctrine of election because I am quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I would have never chosen him. And I am sure he chose me before I was born, or else he never would have chosen me afterward. (laughs) To borrow the language of Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7, God set his love on you. And this brings, secondly, a comfort. God chose to love you. He's never going to rescind that love. He's not going to give that love to you, then take it back. You are his chosen child, a son and daughter of the living king. God is always going to love you. It's not a love that that comes and goes. You can be 100% certain right now that if you believe in Jesus Christ, God chose you and God loves you, and that's forever. Thirdly, this is going to change how we worship. That God would choose me changes me. It humbles me. It causes a a deep, profound joy. I I can't believe that God would do this for me. God, have you seen my life? I mean, from now on, when we say salvation is from the Lord, we mean it in its fullest sense. In every conceivable way, God did it. It's going to change the way you hear the word this morning. It's going to change the way you pray. It'll change the way you evangelize. It's not up to you. It's going to change the way you sing our our closing song about God, the ancient of days. And in our present context this morning, to be chosen means that you and I are exiles. This is not our home. That our identity has changed and And we need to know this new identity if we're going to travel the new road well. You see, we're going to suffer. To be be chosen, to be in Jesus Christ, it means that we are aliens. So who am I? Well, in answer to our first point, you are chosen by God. A second trait, a second marker of our identity, you are chosen by the sanctification of the Spirit. This is the second phrase in verse 2. I'll read them together. You're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. And here we have the means by which God's choice occurs, how it comes to fruition. Now, sanctifying work is is one one word in the Greek. It has to do with a holiness, a consecration, a, a sanctification. The New Testament speaks about sanctification in two main ways. The first is positional. At the moment you believe the gospel, you were sanctified. You were set aside, you were consecrated. That is your position in the Lord. This is like you going to the car dealer and choosing a car, taking it off the lot and parking it in the garage. This is now your car. It is set aside, it's yours. After listing a series of sins, Paul writes to the Corinthians, such were some of you, your identity was in that former life, in your sins, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord. You see, he's saying, listen, Corinth, you have a new identity. Now, you will understand this, just as they did. We don't always feel this way. Our lives don't always look this way. 
but you are set aside in Christ by faith in him. You are consecrated. The second way the New Testament speaks of sanctification, it's progressive. Sanctification is progressive. It's an ongoing change. You're obeying God's word. Your life is changing. You're becoming more and more like Christ. To borrow from your car in the garage, you're now getting it out, you're tuning it up, you're taking it to the car wash, you're driving it around. Paul writes about this form of sanctification in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. Here Paul's sharing his desire for them to have this ongoing holiness where they're becoming more and more like the Lord. It's a progressive holiness in light of their positional holiness. So what's Peter referring to in our passage? Well, I believe he refers to the first form, a consecration, a positional setting aside. I believe in the context, the Spirit here is setting aside those God chose. God chose, the Spirit consecrated. It's the aliens or the sojourners of verse 1. These are those that the Spirit has set aside. And we'll get to it in a moment, but in verse 2, the chosen are sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. There's some Old Testament background there. Again, we'll see that. But but the background there has to do with a consecration or a, a setting aside. But let us also recognize our role here. Because a lot of the talk about election and predestination, even this idea of setting aside by God, we might think that we are somehow robotic and that you and I play no part in all of this. Well, you get the sense from that progressive sanctification that you and I are called to live in a way that honors God. We're to obey God. We are called to be sanctified. We have a role to play. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3 says that God's will for your life is sanctification. Hebrews 12, verse 14 says that only the sanctified will see the Lord. And as we go through this letter, it becomes quite obvious that we have instructions on how to do this. It's very practical. It's what holiness or sanctification looks like toward authorities and toward spouses and toward persecutors and and even others in the church. So that's to say that you and I have a role in this to play as well, and you can walk in it because you were chosen by the sanctification of the Spirit. Now, Peter's audience needed to know this because here they are on the far flank of the Roman Empire with the cold winds of persecution blowing, what they needed to do was based on what was already done. That God has established them in his Son, through the Spirit, they're consecrated, they're set aside, they have everything they need to live as exiles. It may feel alone out there, it may be difficult, but he's saying you guys can stand in Christ. The same is true for you. Your foundation is secure. You're chosen by God, set aside by the Spirit to say it one way, be who you are then, Christian. Go out and live in such a way that who you are and what you're doing matches the identity that God has given you. So to ask, secondly, who am I? You're set aside by God's Spirit. 
We saw, firstly, you're chosen by God. And thirdly, this third identity marker, the third trait, you're chosen to obey Christ. Chosen to obey Christ. Here's the result of God's choosing. Chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. You notice here at this point, all three members of the Trinity involved in what's been accomplished in your life. God chooses people to obey Christ. In a word, to be a Christian is to obey. Obedience is what it means to be a Christian. That's your identity. If you're wondering this morning, who am I, what's my identity, this is the answer. And Peter loves to write about this. It comes up often in these verses about identity. Uh, Angus McClay has made the observation in verse 2, to be a Christian is to obey Christ. Peter likes to talk about this, uh, about what it means to be a Christian, or offer synonyms in different ways. In verse 3, it's to be born again. In verse 8, it's to believe in him. In verse 15, it is to be called. But most of all, it is to obey. We see it in verse 2, obey Jesus Christ. Verse 14, as obedient children... Verse 22, an obedience to the truth. And we know this morning then that to be a Christian is more than, than praying a prayer. It's more than getting baptized. It's more than giving to the offering. It's more than having good attendance. It's one day at a time, one foot in front of the other, a day in, day out obedience to Jesus Christ. To obey has two main parts. The first is obedience to the gospel. The gospel means good news. Earlier, I stated who Jesus was. He's going to command all of us to come and receive his forgiveness. We call that salvation. We are saved from the penalty of our sins. Now, some are going to refuse that invitation. They're going to say, no, thank you. Jesus is fiction. I don't have sin. I'm doing fine. I don't need that. That works for you. Whatever it is, that is disobedience. To obey Jesus Christ is to believe upon him and receive his free gift of salvation. To obey is to believe the gospel. Secondly, it's obedience to the Bible. Jesus has fulfilled the commands of the Old Testament. He's spoken in the Gospels. He's spoken through his apostles. That means you and I have a map. We have a road map. We have a compass on how we ought to navigate and live this life. There's a clear structure in the Bible of what we must do to honor Christ. Peter says, look, exiles, you were chosen to obey Jesus Christ. And look what Peter writes to conclude this thought. I think it's a little odd. It feels a little bit like an afterthought, but there's no no afterthought here. It's an allusion to the Old Testament and its own purpose because it's a statement about identity. In the Old Testament, blood must be shed to inaugurate a covenant. In fact, there are times we speak of cutting a covenant because of the necessary sacrifice involved in making it. In Exodus chapter 24, Israel is out of Egypt She's ready to confirm her covenant with God. 
Moses sacrifices animals. He puts blood in the basins and he sprinkles blood on the altar. In chapter 24, verse 7, this is Exodus. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. He then takes the blood and he sprinkles it on the people in the front rows. Can you imagine that? Aren't you thankful in the back that you weren't sitting in the front? (laughs) That means then that every time they got dressed, every time they put on those clothes, every time they saw their family members and their neighbors and their friends and they saw that blood on their clothes, they remembered that covenant that they would obey because they're God's people. That event, as unusual as it was, fixed in their minds the gravity of what it means to be God's child. Aren't you thankful for communion? We don't need to do that sprinkling anymore. Jesus says, this is the new covenant in my blood poured out for you. And Peter wants to fix in the minds of believers, his audience, and I am sure you as well today, the infinite value of obedience to Jesus Christ. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. God has chosen us to obey his son. Our passage this morning calls you and I to to look around, to look left and to look right, to see other aliens and other exiles in the same place that we are in Jesus Christ. We're sprinkled with his blood. It calls us to look down at whatever we call home and remember it's not. This passage this morning calls you and I to look up, to see the Trinity working on our behalf. And the passage also calls us to look inside and see our identity in a big God. You see, how we view ourselves has huge implications for how we live. Peter's going to continue to describe your identity in chapter 1. I can't wait to get there with you next time. It's foundational to how we function as believers in a world that's not our home. And if this morning, if you are able to agree with your alien status in Jesus Christ, and you believe that you are in exile and you're feeling it, maybe dejected or deflated, Maybe you're feeling spurned by other people, even disregarded. And if this morning you can also agree with God's freedom to choose, but you feel the burden of having to win him over. And if this morning you can agree that God set you aside, but sin keeps beating you down, you feel like more like Corinth than you do a Christian. Peter says, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. That is to say that God's unmerited favor rests upon you, believer, wherever you are, and that you have a peace with God, no more hostility between you and your Father. And if you can see your identity as God does, you are well on your way as living as an exile in this foreign land. Let's pray together. Father, we are humbled by love that you've bestowed upon us in your son, Jesus Christ. To read about the Trinity 
all three members working on our behalf. Oh Lord, it's a humbling thought. I pray for us as exiles today. I believe in the years to come we'll look more and more different, maybe feeling more and more as outsiders and perhaps um, growing more and more sad and, and frustrated. Lord, I pray for us that we would hear from your word on this, that we would believe your word and your word would do a work in our hearts to fix our feet securely in the kingdom that is our home. Lord, we love you and we trust you and we commit our lives to you. In Jesus' name, amen.